This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Reverend Wilson D. Miss Campbell is professor of history at the University of Notre Dame. He has also served as chairman of that department of history, and it's the university where he earned his PhD in 1980. A native of Australia, Professor Miss Campbell has enjoyed a distinguished career as historian, particularly an historian of American foreign policy since World War II. He's a two-time recipient of the Harry S. Truman Award for his books, George F. Kennan and the Making of American Foreign Policy, and From Roosevelt to Truman, Potsdam, Hiroshima, and the Cold War. But his most recent book is the topic of our conversation today, American Priest, The Ambitious Life and Conflicted Legacy of Notre Dame's Father Ted Hesburg, and it's going to be a very interesting conversation. Professor Miss Campbell, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks very much, Dr. Moller. Pleasure to be with you. I've really looked forward to this conversation. When I was first elected president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary back in 1993, uh, th th this will intrigue you. My conservative evangelical Southern Baptist board chairman uh, gave me a copy of God Country Notre Dame <laughs> by uh, Theodore Hesburgh, the uh, very famous president of, of the University of Notre Dame. And I found it, I must tell you, incredibly helpful and frustrating. And uh, that was my first really, I knew who he was, but that was my first real you know, engagement with him. And uh, I was really looking forward to your book when it came out. And I have to tell you, I, I found it a feast. Uh, how did you decide uh, to write this biographical work of, uh, of Father Hesburgh? Well, there's, uh, there's a story there, and um, it uh, grows out of my own involvement. So I'm a, a teacher at Notre Dame. I've been teaching here since the... Uh, mid-1980s, so I tapped in right at the very end of Hesburgh's presidency. He finished in 1987, and Edward Malloy took over uh, from there. In that period, as I was getting underway at Notre Dame, there was a lot of contestation over the Catholic mission and identity of the university. And uh, I was engaged in those conversations and wanting to understand why it was that there was this, uh, I would describe it as a sort of uh, secularizing tendency about, and uh, it was out of concerns generated from that uh, whole uh, mixture of discussion that I began to conceive of a biography of Hesburgh as a way of understanding how looking at using Hesburgh as a lens to uh, reflect on how Notre Dame had uh, developed over the previous couple of decades. So I have to confess it emerged, I don't disguise this, it emerged out of my own concerns about the Catholic mission and identity of Notre Dame. Now, I identified the idea to him, to Father Hesburgh, in the mid-1990s about writing about him, and I interviewed him in the late 1990s at some length up at Lander Lakes, Wisconsin. But I waited until his death 
until, so he died in 2015, until I set about writing the book. So there was a long gestation period for the book, but that's how I came to it. I wanted to understand the journey that both Hesburg and Notre Dame, I thought it would allow me to tell some stories about religion and public life and religion and higher education in America. I hope it's something, it, it is a kind of Catholic book, as you know, Dr. Mola, but it's a book that I believe uh, Christians of all denominations can read with interest and benefit from. I, I hope that's uh, how you found it. Well, absolutely. And that's why I've been looking uh, so forward to this conversation. So uh, when, uh, when I tried to understand what was going on in evangelical higher education, and, yes. uh, and that long before I came here as president, actually, when I was even here as a doctoral student, uh, I began trying to trace the process by which uh, academic aspiration or, or cultural aspiration on the part of institutions ran into uh, dissonance, let's just say, with the convictional uh, basis and the ecclesial control over these schools. So. Uh, in the, the Southern Baptist context, you had so many schools that broke relationships right in the midst of the, uh, of the controversies of the 20s and, uh, and the aftermath of the Depression. And then an entire new round by the time you get to the 1980s and 90s. And uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, frankly, was just too conservative in the view of many of these uh, colleges and, 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 and their state conventions as well. But uh, it was actually uh, seeing the parallels with the Roman Catholic experience that I, I think became very instructive. And of course, uh, James Burchill, who was the, uh, the provost there at Notre Dame, wrote the great book, uh, The Dying of the Light, on the disengagement yes. of uh, American religious universities from their, their church accountability, their church roots. And uh, most of the institutions he covered, by the way, were Protestant institutions. Yes. And then with uh, Theodore Hesburgh in Notre Dame, I mean, Notre Dame's just an American fact. And uh, if American Protestants don't know much about Catholicism, they certainly know something about Notre Dame. <laughs> yes. And uh, and it symbolizes Catholicism. And Hesburgh was, to Notre Dame, I would argue, what Woodrow Wilson was to Princeton. He was the transformative president who created an institution uh, basically on the same real estate, but a very different institution. And in reading the, his own autobiography, God, Country, Notre Dame, I, I have to tell you, a part of me as a young president here thought, I want to do exactly that. But far more of me thought, I want to do exactly the opposite of that. Uh, because by the time Hesburgh left office as president of Notre Dame, arguably, Notre Dame was less Catholic uh, than it was when he arrived and uh, you tell that story, and it's, it's simplistic to put it that way, but, uh, but that's basically the story you tell, where uh, Theodore Hesburgh had incredible ambitions for Notre Dame University. But by the time he left, the, the, the school was basically outside uh, the control of the religious order that had established it and was redefining what it meant to be Catholic. Just tell us that story, if you can. Yes, well, it's a, it's a, a complicated story in some ways, 
But uh, as I think you're already sort of aware of from having read the Jim Birchall book, The Dying of the Light, it's a story that sort of gets replicated in differing denominations and in differing institutions. So Father Hesburgh becomes president of Notre Dame in 1952. He serves for 35 years in the position until 1987. But he claims that he had this sort of vision as to what he was destined to do uh, right at the outset, that he was to create a great Catholic university. And uh, he would often say, well, they had some back in the Middle Ages, you know, but it, has, it hasn't been good since then. And he is correct to say that the Catholic universities and colleges formed in the 19th century, like Notre Dame, they were struggling places. Some of them survived, some of them didn't, and they were very much teaching teaching institutions. They were trying to help uh, first, second generation Catholics grow. I imagine many of the Baptist colleges would identify themselves in the same way. The early founders of Notre Dame, members of the religious order to which I belong, they thought they were trying to prepare good citizens to contribute in the earthly realm and good citizens for heaven. Now, Father Ted looked at the landscape and he saw the best, in quotes, universities are those Ivy League places and the elite of the state universities, such as the University of Michigan, University of Wisconsin, Cal Berkeley, etc. What defined them? Research defines them, of course. They have a, an important research infrastructure. They have high-level uh, professoriate doing original work. So he sees right at the outset, they're an institution that just doesn't rate with that crowd, and I'm determined to push Notre Dame into their company. Now, the... the course of action to do that is you you want to replicate who who they are and what they do and that is what i would say happens to him fairly quickly he starts off in the 1950s clearly with his thinking about there's a distinct way to be a Catholic university. And he never stops talking about being a great Catholic university right throughout. But by the 1960s, I argue he gets caught in a kind of uh, association with the elite of American higher education, with the Rockefeller Foundation board, etc. He's mixing it up with this crowd. He's on the National Science Board, so he's seeing what top science does. And he realizes, I've got to raise money, money, very important. And I've got to recruit faculty who can do elite kind of research. And so the push through a very difficult decade, the 1960s, there was a lot of upheaval in American higher education. The push is to replicate what goes on in these elite, mainly Ivy League schools, most of whom, of course, all of whom had started as religious institutions, but it by and large marginalized religion, certainly by the 20th century. So I argue 
that Father Ted loses sight, loses sight of the crucial religious dimension of the school. He preserves, anyone who visits Notre Dame and looks at, you know, we have our beautiful basilica, there are chapels in every residence hall, there's all kinds of icon, you know, folks who watch a football game would know of Jesus, the teacher, who is known as Touchdown Jesus, uh, they go, Bill Muscan, well, what's your problem? You know, there's religiosity all around the place, but, but... The challenge is what goes on in the central academic heart. And increasingly that began to be separated from the religious mission and purpose of the place. You want to be like the Ivy League, you recruit faculty from the Ivy League. You want to be like them, you want your curriculum to sort of reflect what they do. And that is what happened. We did not pay enough attention to those fundamental questions. Who teaches and what gets taught? So over time, this never happened by one single decision, although Lando Lakes in 1967 is a key moment, it doesn't happen by one decision. It happens bit by bit by lots of decisions. I'm sure that's happened in schools of your denomination. It's not that they, now Notre Dame has never gone down the path where we have separated ourselves like some, some Baptist schools have separated from their convention. We have never done that, but we have sought to declare our independence from the institutional church. And, uh, yeah, Father Ted, uh, I think he, he was uh, torn within himself by the 1980s, and then particularly through his retirement, I think he had some reservations about how it had turned out, but he yes. could never really admit them publicly. Well, I, I understand that. I, uh, I I often tell people that with reference to uh, Notre Dame, I'm I'm trying to undo uh, a, a very similar kind of effort. So when, uh, if you were to look at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary faculty in the 1950s, yeah. their model was, and, and I mean technically, was the Yale Divinity School. Ooh, yeah. Not Harvard, but Yale. And, uh, and, and they, they really focused on that. I, I was reminded, even thinking about this last night, that for uh, uh, Theodore Hesburgh, Princeton was the precise model for Notre Dame, not Harvard or Yale, because they had they had less emphasis upon undergraduate teaching. And he was still committed that Notre Dame would be an undergraduate institution of, of emphasis. But uh, I was elected here in 1993 as a part of a conservative recovery in the Southern Baptist Convention to bring the school back to theological accountability. And, and uh, what uh, is in the Protestant world, a... Uh, a very clear confessionalism uh, and an accountable confessionalism, and uh, and at the same time to make certain that it was unashamedly committed to Christian scholarship. But uh, all before me was the model of uh, Theodore Hesburgh in Notre Dame, and I understand the temptation. I want to say that I understand the temptation. He writes about going to Notre Dame when the uh, the religion courses taught to undergraduates, where he said no greater than high school level, 
And uh, there just wasn't much academic aspiration. And and that was true of a lot of evangelical institutions uh, for decades in the 20th century as well. Uh, The problem is that uh, you have to decide whose rules you're going to play by. And uh, the the reality is you can't be a Princeton now unless you're going to play by the same rules as Princeton. And uh, I saw that in... um, in Theodore Hesburgh's uh, memoir, God, Country, Notre Dame, when he wrote about the fact that early in his presidency, and you point out how early, uh, he came to the conclusion that Notre Dame would have to have an independent faculty, and it would have to have a, a governing board that was not driven by religious impulses, but rather by this academic vision. And uh, among other things, it would have to have a lot of money and a commitment to research. And, uh, and by the time you add all that together, even by the academic rules of the uh, elite institutions in the 1950s and 60s, that meant what Birchall called a disengagement uh, from, from the respective churches. And is that a fair word to use of Notre Dame, a disengagement from classical Catholicism? Uh I would I would qualify. I would say yes and no. So uh, in the 1967 Land O'Lakes statement that Father Hesburgh was not the drafter of it, but became the principal spokesperson for it, Land O'Lakes declares we are not subject to any outside authority. We are only subject to the internal workings of the academic community. So uh, my former colleague, Philip Gleason, has termed this a declaration of independence, independence. Yet Catholicism is, of course, a multi-layered operation. Father Hesburgh and the religious community to which he belonged, he's a Catholic priest. He can't separate himself off from the incident. He's a priest in that church. But functionally, Father Hesburgh wanted to declare, I'm not under the control of any outside body. He once declared, I don't want anyone in the Vatican telling me what to do. You know, he said, one of those cardinals, they wouldn't know a university from a cemetery. Now, by the way, that's a little unfair to most of the cardinals over there, but that was Father Ted's view to separate himself forth. And yet, and yet, Notre Dame, because of its embedded Catholicism, the fact that there is a religious order, there are still about 40 members of my order involved at Notre Dame. Even today, our numbers have declined, but we're involved in uh, teaching and in the residence life and campus ministry and so on, so we have a presence. And uh, there's a, a tension at work. So. I, I try to argue to my friends, look, we have not separated off. We have to, as, as you have done with your presidency, we have to recalibrate, we have to re-engage, and we have to take uh, John Paul II's Excorde Ecclesiae as our guiding charter, which says, no, we operate from the heart of the church. So, uh, Notre Dame is still in a kind of uh, mixed place. It, it, it certainly hasn't secularized, but it has gone quite far down a secular direction. 
And Father Ted sadly put it in that direction, even though I don't think he understood fully the consequences of the decisions he was making at the time. Well, I think that would be also characteristic of many Southern Baptist and evangelical leaders of the same era, yeah. who, uh, whose intentions were not to secularize their institutions, but the effect often became that. Yes. And, uh, you know, while we're talking, you, you mentioned the Land of Lake statement. I want to come back to that in just a moment. But, uh, you know, among Catholic institutions, most of the Catholic colleges and universities have state charters. Um Father Hesburg pointed out over and over again, but uh, yeah, yeah, the, we are constituted by an Indiana uh, yes. legislated charter. But the Catholic University of America is a pontifical institution, and thus yes. is governed differently. I say that in order to make clear that the institutions of the Southern Baptist Convention itself, not of the state conventions, but of the Southern Baptist Convention itself, and at the head of that, its first institution, which is the institution I lead, we're all. Baptist pontifical institutions. <laughs> is that, right? uh, that is to say, our boards are elected by the denomination itself, by the by our churches. Oh, and okay. so I, you know, we, we don't have a self-perpetuating board. And so, uh, you know, when I speak to Catholics, I say, you know, we're, we're, we're like CUA. Uh, we're not <laughs> yeah. like Notre Dame. And that's, that's how uh, conservative Southern Baptists were able to regain control of their institutions. It's because they had the power to elect trustees. And so mm. that, that was the determining, uh, issue. And, and eventually they hold the charter They you know, that, that they, they decide what the institution is. And, uh, uh yes, well, uh, it may take us yes. off in a bit of a side direction, but you're mentioning trustees, the yes. important role that trustees play uh, it's it's a great regret of mine because Notre Dame has had some fine trustees, but many of them are selected more for their giving potential. And, you know, there are various buildings on campus that reflect trustees' names, but they have not been as attentive to fidelity to mission as one might have hoped the trustees would have been over you know, this four-decade, five-decade period. Yes. Can I just uh, share with you, to speaking of going off uh, off the, the main road here for a moment, I have to share with you an interesting anecdote about one of my visits to, to Notre Dame. Yes. And uh, I, was, I was visiting and was kindly being uh, 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 shown about uh, uh, the university by the provost's office. Yes. And uh, we came to the Eck Center, the big student center, and uh, as an historical theologian, I was very intrigued by that. And so I said, you know, I'm just frankly kind of amazed that in the middle of this, you know, landmark Catholic institution in the United States, there'd be this massive center in honor of Johannes Eck. Uh, <laughs> you know, best known for his disputation with Luther in 1519. And he said, and, and there was a puzzled look on my guide's face. And, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, is this not named for Johannes Eck? He said, oh, no, this is named for a businessman, I think, from Toledo. Uh, but it was a, so sometimes we can read more theology than is actually there. Yes, uh, yes. I, I, I don't think Johannes is going to receive any particular attention at Notre Dame. Yes. 
I think Frank Eck was the person who it was named for. <laughs> well, I, 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 I found that out. And as a president, I appreciate those donors. So yes, yes, you know, I, I'm all for Mr. generous Eck. donors. Yes, yes. But I'm for generous yes. donors who understand yes. the significance of the mission Amen. and their own role in making yes. sure the institution stays faithful to it. Absolutely. Now, in, in, in your history, and, and that's absolutely crucial, in your history, uh, you uh, you go back to the fact that Father Hesburgh, Theodore Hesburgh, he began to lay out uh, his vision for Notre Dame and basically got his board to adopt this this plan. And then after that, he uh, he wanted to bring other Catholic institutions into that same system and, and thus the Land O'Lakes meeting and the statement you spoke about. And as a as someone who deals in the history of the secularization of American colleges and universities, I go back to that statement over and over again. I think it'd be helpful if you just explained what that is. And Land O'Lakes is a retreat center owned by Notre Dame. So that's where the, the meeting was held. Yes, yes. So Land O'Lakes is in northern Wisconsin, actually the, the border of Wisconsin and the upper peninsula of Michigan crosses through some of the lakes on the property. And Father Hesburgh, it was a place in the world that he absolutely loved, spent time there every summer. He would take books up to read and listen to classical music and to the loons on the lake and so forth. So it was a place that was near, by the way, he was a great fisherman as well. So he loved to fish up there. But it was a place near and dear to him and a place where he gathered a group of Catholic educators. They were mainly from Jesuit schools uh, Fordham and St. Louis, so on. Many of these schools were going through uh, Boston College. Many of these schools were going through perhaps a similar experience as uh, Notre Dame. They had significant leaders. These were fellows who wanted to sort of separate themselves off from some of the restraints from being part of a religious community where you have to get permissions for various things. And uh, they also were part of this movement were wanting uh, academic improvement. They wanted to move from being just primarily teaching institutions, being more research oriented, and to you know gain more credibility and respect in the larger uh, American Academy. There's a, a sort of a broad theme of assimilation that's going on. I mean, I think it's connected somewhat to politics. JFK is running and he's uh, sort of, you know, Catholic acceptance in the country. And folks, uh, uh, Hesburgh was a deep, deep American patriot. He loved the United States and uh, thought that it was by far the greatest country in the world, etc. Anyway, Hesburgh gathers these educators together as part of a sort of uh, discussion group and conference preparing for a larger meeting of the International Federation of Catholic Universities. And he's a significant figure there. And he argues, look, we've got to have some statement that clarifies for secular schools and the wider, uh, wider academic establishment that we're not sort of under the thumb of these outside religious figures. And uh, hence they drafted a statement. It's not a lengthy statement. In, in many ways, it's a rather weak and confused statement, uh, but it declares that 
Catholic universities will meet the criteria of the academy, but they will not subject themselves to any outside authority. Now, they weren't talking about subjecting themselves to the NCAA with all kinds of athletic restrictions. We went along with all of those without any problem. By outside authority, they meant the, the church, our institutional church. That's who they were declaring. So Father Hesburgh then, ironically, tries to sell this statement to the International Federation of Catholic Universities. So he's selling a statement that says we're not going to be under any outside authority to a Catholic authority. This is where I say he's so confused. He wants the Vatican to give him approval to be kind of separate from the Vatican. Father Ted went around constantly saying the Catholic University is where the church does its thinking. Uh, that's a bit of a conceit on his part. It's where it does some of its thinking, but not all of its thinking. Some of the thinking is a little questionable at times. But anyway, Father Ted wanted to have the Catholic University do the thinking for the church and yet not be in any way responsible yes. to the church. Yes. You can see, I'm sure your Absolutely. listeners will see the confusion involved there that he didn't want to break fully, yet he didn't want to be under any control by yes. the institution. That's church. a very familiar well, I refrain. Hope, I hope that yes. explains it a little better it, it uh, does. for your listeners, Dr. Moller. It, it does indeed. Thank you. It, it, it's a very familiar refrain. This is, this is a very similar approach that, that was taken by many evangelical institutions and some Baptist institutions uh, at the same time. But, you know, these things show up uh, where I think uh, two, two very clear signals are sent, and, and this is the substance of it all. Uh, what actually happens in the classroom? Who is going to be hired to teach at this university? And uh, you know, for us, it's just extremely clear that as a confessional institution, we not only hire people who are willing to teach these truths, but we want to hire the people who are animated by them and absolutely committed to them. Yes. And uh, so, so how did this change the hiring policy at Notre Dame? Yes. So that's an issue that I've been involved in and sort of uh, struggling with for 30 years. I was chair of the history department in the 1990s and have tried to raise it as a concern because uh, from the 1970s really onwards, there's been a struggle over precisely this issue. And folks have tried to put up a kind of academic excellence on the one hand versus confessional commitment on the other. Now, I try to argue that it is indeed possible and indeed uh, the uh, availability of faculty is such that you can get folks who are academically excellent and committed to the Catholic mission. By the way, for us at Notre Dame, we don't have any confessional statement. In, in my department, in the history department, uh, two of treasured colleagues were great evangelical scholars, George Marsden, replaced by Mark Knoll. Those, those wonderful scholars, both terrific scholars, were deeply committed in their own way to the religious mission of the university because they both recognized 
that Notre Dame could be a place that could help train perhaps a, a new generation of evangelical scholars. Nathan Hatch, who's now president of Wake Forest, was once provost here at Notre Dame. So uh, what our charter calls for is a predominant number of Catholic, committed Catholic intellectuals. And if you have that number, the mix of them is going to, uh, you know, be open to including other folks who share and want to join in the mission. I, sadly, I would say we have not been as attentive to this as we should have been, and there are often battles over faculty hiring, as uh, I'm sure there are in evangelical uh, colleges. And uh, this is, I have good friends, I have good friends at Baylor, and uh, I know this has sometimes been an issue at Baylor as well. Yes, and in uh, other institutions, it, it's it's not an issue here, uh, but that uh, that has a story behind it as well, and and, and that's because um, the uh, the institutions in which faculty basically do the hiring, uh, you end up with a situation in which faculty hire. And, and it used to be said faculty just replicate themselves. That's not entirely true. They they hire towards their vision of the of the school. And and so uh, when you look at many of these state Baptist colleges and universities, or or when you look at Southern Seminary in the nineteen seventies, eighties, nineties, until I came in in ninety three, uh, you had faculty who uh, named they basically were the search committee, and all the president could do at the very end of the process is say no. Uh, the president had no input into who was put into the process. And uh, in 1995, I'm very grateful, the Board of Trustees changed that process so that the president is in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. There's a, there's a real search process, but, uh, but I get to put people into that process and uh, then uh, I get to be a part of the evaluation. And then, yes, I have to decide whether I'm going to recommend to the board. But that, that has changed things fundamentally. It's, it's a much healthier situation because I answer as the executive officer and president to the board of trustees uh, in, in that sense. Uh, but I also learned the hard way that without that, a president sets a vision in words, but the faculty decides where the school is going to go. Yes, and that's certainly what occurred at Notre Dame. So the faculty essentially handle hiring. As you say, it's only at the very end that a, a president could intervene. Uh, this uh, emphasized the importance of having chairs of department, deans of colleges who buy into and are willing to uh, stand up for the mission. And sometimes it leads to, you know, conflictual situations because uh, faculty, of course, uh, many of whom have come from Ivy League institutions uh, in the quest for excellence, uh, want to replicate what they know from that school and uh, they shortchange or even dismiss the commitment to the religious mission which should be central to the nature of a school that has the kind of commitments that Notre Dame claims that it does. Yes, and I often course, say Southern that. Southern Baptist uh, does. Yes, I, I often say that uh, 
uh, for instance, looking at the pattern that George Marsden mentions and uh, or traces in the soul of the American University and 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 uh, James Birchall in uh, the Dying of the Light, they didn't put it in these words, but I do. Uh, there's a shift from uh, affirmation of the church and its confessional basis to some kind of detachment, and then after that, it's antipathy. Um, and, and so there are faculty members in many universities, in seminaries and others, who actually look to their own churches with a, a form of, I, I'd say the kindest word would be condescension. Uh, and uh, I, I was reminded at one point of that, I, I dare say, when uh, I reread God Country Notre Dame, when uh, Father Hesburgh said that his critics tended to be little old ladies wearing tennis shoes, and uh, and those in the far right, and uh, and I was thinking, you know, uh, I hear I hear refrains of uh, why uh, in the evangelical world I hear many leaders say, or not so much now, but in the past, say things like, "Well, uh, that's just the little old ladies in tennis shoes." Yes, yes. Father Ted began to move. Of course, uh, in the book. I tell the story of his leadership of Notre Dame, but I tell also of his very extensive involvement in American public life. And that involvement in American public life, they're related in a way. I, I separate them out just for understanding the story. But Father Ted's journey from working with the Rockefellers in the late 50s and then very much involved in the Civil Rights uh, uh, Commission through the 60s and his admiration grows for Lyndon Johnson. But then uh, he, he still had a friendly relationship with Richard Nixon until they had a rupture. Nixon fired him as chair of the Civil Rights Commission. By that point, Father Ted is deeply embedded in a liberal establishment in America. He wants their regard. Uh, I suggest that he had become sort of somewhat dependent on uh, the approval and regard of you know, the sort of New York, Washington axis. He loved leaving South Bend to go off for a, you know, a Blue Ribbon Commission meeting in New York, something of that sort. And his associates and friends began to be much more on the liberal side. And he became somewhat dismissive of, you know, more conservative Catholics who were concerned about the life issues. It's not that Father Ted was ever uh, a suspect, but he just didn't make the life issues a very important matter of his public concern. And so it became easier for him to dismiss the complaints of serious Catholics who were worried about the direction of Notre Dame. He was getting the approval of the East Coast establishment. What were these little people, you know, carping at him? Who, who could really care about them? It became increasingly, I, I fear, his attitude. Well, in the book, you mention, um, reading from page 288 here, speaking of Theodore Hesburgh, he decided not to make opposition to abortion one of the great issues in which he would engage 
And uh, you say at the very moment he had reached a pinnacle in his accomplishments on civil rights and had won the regard of key groups in the society, he refrained from using his power and influence to fight for the unborn. And uh, that's rather heartbreaking, honestly, to read. Uh, when you consider the uh, the urgency of, of the life issue, now life issues, as you say, but that gets to the second issue I wanted to raise, uh, Professor Miss Gamble. So I mentioned uh, that it comes down to the faculty, but the another very substantial uh, indicator of who the institution thinks it is uh, are the speakers who come to the campus. And uh, with Notre Dame, some of that controversy actually came quite early. And, uh, you know, in the twists and turns of Catholic history, one of the most controversial was uh, John Courtney Murray, uh, who would later be seen as something of the Catholic mainstream. But uh, I'm thinking of Mario Cuomo, and I'm thinking of 1984. And uh, so just in speaking about these issues, uh, how does Notre Dame come to the moment when a Mario Cuomo can uh, can speak at Notre Dame and uh, Notre Dame basically get by with it. Yes, well, the Cuomo speech uh, came about in 1984 for the benefit of your, your listeners, just a little context. Uh, Geraldine Ferraro was running as Walter Mondale's vice presidential, she was his running mate, and uh, Cardinal John O'Connor, in New York raised criticism of Ferraro's position on abortion. She was essentially Roe v. Wade all the way, that kind of thing. And uh, O'Connor said, look, you can't be a serious Catholic if, if you're holding that stance. We're, we're teaching as a fundamental moral issue that life begins with conception. So there's that tension. So Ferraro was not capable of responding to O'Connor, but Mario Cuomo is a very clever man, certainly uh, wanted to take on the responsibility and give a kind of response back to O'Connor. And so the invitation for Cuomo to come to Notre Dame was extended by the then chair of the theology department, a liberal theologian, Father Richard McBrien. And out came Cuomo to Notre Dame under the guise of Notre Dame is a place where the church wrestles with these important questions, and we have to hear what Mario Cuomo has to say. And of course, Mario Cuomo gave the classic uh, line, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but as a public official, I have to abide by the law, etc. And hence, you know, I won't be doing anything to change uh, Roe v. Wade, etc. Now, interestingly enough, I point this out in the book, and this is to Father Ted's great credit. He was present and acknowledged that night in Washington Hall when Cuomo gave the address. And of course, everyone applauded, etc. I, I was a seminarian at the time. But a week or so later, Father Hesburgh wrote an op-ed response to Cuomo. 
And this is what he said. I wish Hesburgh's response to Cuomo was as well known as the Cuomo speech, which has been adopted by Catholic politicians from that point onwards, including, of course, we have Joe Biden running for uh, the president right now, adopting that, you know, I'm personally opposed, but, uh, you know, abortion all the way. Hesburgh said, of course, Governor Cuomo gave, you know, a wonderful address at Notre Dame. But, he said, I would qualify what he said with this proviso. A Catholic politician has an obligation to build a public consensus in support of life. Hesburgh said, what if Cuomo's rule had applied on the civil rights issue? He said, no, no one would have moved. Everyone would have said we're just locked in place. There was an obligation, a moral obligation on politicians to build a consensus in support. Of course, Father Hesburgh was very proud of his own record on civil rights. Build a consensus in support of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. And Hesburgh said to Cuomo, you have a duty to build the very public consensus, not to say, oh, I'm personally opposed, but the public thinks otherwise. And uh, I, I never saw a decent response. Hesburgh's uh, sort of um, response to Cuomo got lost in the weeds, lost in the shuffle. So Notre Dame did host the address, that's for sure. But... Uh, it was not as if they gave uh, Cuomo a full stamp of approval. Hesburgh, as president of the institution, was trying to push back. But sadly, everyone just remembers the Cuomo address and that it took place at Notre Dame. By the way, I'm trying to write a book about Catholic politicians, and I'm going to explore Mario Cuomo and a personal hero of mine, Governor Robert P. Casey of Pennsylvania, who was a rough contemporary of Cuomo's Absolutely. in that study. Yeah. Uh, well, I would look forward to reading that as well. As uh, uh, Long before this, I uh, read your work on George Kennan and American foreign policy. So it's as if uh, we're yes. having a conversation by book <laughs> when we're not having it in person. But, uh, you know, uh, th this is an issue of great moral and academic interest to me. This uh, this argument about being personally opposed to abortion, but refusing to impose that. Because on the LGBTQ issues, we're hearing the same thing uh, from many. And it's not just Catholics, it, it's others as well. And uh, so trying to do a, a forensic study on this, you know, I, I was led back to uh, the fact that there was a meeting uh, with members of the Kennedy family you know, I'm sure you're familiar with it, in which uh, you had figures who came up with that rationale as a way for, uh, eventually it was Ted Kennedy to run on, on pretty much, I mean, people forget Ted Kennedy was once classically pro-life, uh, in, at least in terms of his stated beliefs, but, uh, but he changed and, you know, that, that has become a widespread argument. Uh, it's unique to Catholicism in one sense, but only in a very limited sense, because there are others who try to pick up the very same argument. Uh, and, and some 
left-wing evangelicals have tried, and, and I think are tempted right now by, especially on the LGBTQ issues, just saying, uh, well, this is my personal conviction, but I, I don't translate that into public policy. And even some would go so far as Governor Cuomo did as to argue that it would be a violation of the separation of church and state to impose you know, morality. But of course, every law imposes morality. That's, a, that's an illegitimate argument. Yes, there was an irony at the time. Cuomo was uh, an opponent of the death penalty, as indeed uh, I am myself. But in the state of New York, the public consensus favored the death penalty. So he was caught on his own petard of there were certain issues where his moral convictions outweighed what might have been the broad public consensus. A leader is elected to bring to office deep moral convictions as to right and wrong. And uh, Mario Cuomo, I see him as quite a tragic, tragic figure who has misled a generation of Catholic politicians uh, down a, a really sad path. Uh, hopefully there might be a new generation of them uh, emerging when one lives in hope uh, in that regard. Well, I have to say with a, a, a genuine respect and gratitude, uh, I'm very grateful for many at the University of Notre Dame who have uh, contributed tremendously to uh, the American conversation in a very healthy way. Uh, I'll just say the name Amy Coney Barrett, uh, whose uh, scholarship as a law professor at the University of Notre Dame I have tracked for years, uh, along with many others. And and, uh, it's a big institution. And so there are some very fine uh, scholars uh, teaching there who've contributed mightily uh, to our uh, even the conservative movement in the United States. And I, I deeply appreciate that. Yes, absolutely. I, I, it's, uh, you're mentioning Amy, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, prayers for her as she prepares to go through uh, well, it's going to be a bit of an ordeal next week, I expect. But our law school at Notre Dame has some wonderful faculty who have really wrestled with some of these fundamental questions that uh, sort of connect uh, religious liberty and uh, various of the life questions, et cetera. And of course, as we know, the law is so important in the United States, what's determined in the courts, et cetera, influence so much of social and public life uh, in this country. But uh, that's what I would uh, say in a more general way beyond the law school, there are still terrific Catholic faculty and other faculty who believe in this mission. So I always uh, say to folks, uh, you know, there are a sizable group of folks who are pretty critical of Notre Dame in toto. And uh, I say, no, no, we're a place where a kind of battle is being waged uh, for the overall direction of the school. And uh, we have to hope that the Holy Spirit guides those who want the school to be faithful to its religious mission, to continue to be courageous and to contribute here in very important ways. Well, I know that's a word from the heart as well as from the head. And uh, (laughs) it reminds us of how there is a succession in these arguments and models. And so, uh, you know, Princeton wanted to be the American Cambridge, 
And yes. Notre Dame wanted to be the Catholic Princeton. And, uh, you know, back uh, a decade or so ago, we heard that Baylor wanted to be the Baptist Notre Dame. So there's a, a genealogy, you <laughs> yeah. know, he, here I'll just goes. be content yes. if Notre Dame is its own Notre Dame. We don't yes. have to model ourselves. Yes. We have to shape and define what a, a yes. good, we don't have to use the word great, what a good Catholic university should do. And if we can accomplish that, I think we will have some ripple benefits for other schools uh, that they will see that uh, this model of higher education, which is distinctively located in the United States and borrows a lot from other American universities, but has its own core that grows out of its religious commitments. Yeah. Professor Miss Campbell, uh, this has been a, a most engaging conversation and very profitable. I want to thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much, Dr. Moller, for all that you do. God thank bless you. you. Well, that's what you can classify as a most interesting, if uh, maybe unpredictable, conversation. You put together the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a professor, a Catholic priest, professor at the University of Notre Dame. Many people might not make that connection, but I hope the connection is extremely clear due to the conversation we just had. When I heard of Professor Miss Campbell's book on Theodore Hesburgh, I knew I had to get it and I had to read it, and I devoured it. And I told a little bit of the story why that would be so in the course of the conversation. When you look at higher education throughout the United States, indeed, even beyond the United States, but right here in this country, over the course of, say, the last half century, there have been few educational leaders who could come close to Theodore Hesburg at Notre Dame as you think of influence and legacy. But it's a mixed legacy, and it's one with which I have had to deal as president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. As I said, it was the chairman of my own board, a conservative evangelical Southern Baptist, very involved in the conservative resurgence in the SBC, who gave me Theodore Hesburgh's book, God, Country, Notre Dame, as a, as a gift and wanted me to read it. And I devoured that. But I also, as I said, came to the conclusion, I want to do a part of what Theodore Hesburgh did at Notre Dame but I want to undo a larger part. But in any event, I was indebted both to Theodore Hesburgh for the model and to Wilson Miss Campbell later for telling more of the story. It's a story that, as I said, needs to be told through books such as James Burchill's The Dying of the Light and George Marsden's The Soul of the American University. But when you look at Professor Miss Campbell's book, it's a unique way of getting to these most basic issues, and it's extremely contemporary. Even though it begins back in the early 1950s, the issues are just as relevant as our conversation made clear today. So what did I learn from all of this? One thing I learned is this, and this has become not only uh, something that I say to the public, it's something that I say to myself, and it comes from the depth of my heart. My goal has been to make the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary as Baptist as possible, as confessional as possible. And one of the benefits of this institution is its name, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And as I say, every one of those words is vitally important. The Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Every word's important and vital. 
Every word tells a story, including thee. Many thanks to my guest, Wilson D. Miss Campbell, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller. <music>